is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day, g'day. Dan Fitzgerald is my name and thanks for joining me for the Country Hour on this Tuesday. Well, cattle properties in the Gulf of Carpentaria are starting the job of recovery as floodwaters in some places begin to recede. The ground is saturated. There's water running out of the hills everywhere. Um, it'll be quite a while, it'll probably a month before we get a vehicle uh, off a main road. I think it's, you know, the ground saturated. Yeah, we'll check in with some stations in Queensland's Gulf Country. There's still a lot of flood water heading down the Georgina River in the Northern Territory and into Queensland's cattle country. We'll be finding out how they're going today. And Australia has just signed a deal to send avocados to India. Farmers in Australia are hoping this will ease the glut of avos that have been on the market for the last few years. And it's often said that the most important the most important person on the station is the cook. You're the first person the crew sees in the morning and you're the last person they see at night. So if you've got a happy cook in the kitchen, then you've got a happy crew. And if you've got a sour cook in the kitchen, then you've got a sour crew. So why are some stations finding it hard to find and keep cooks? And what's the industry doing to train up new cooks? Uh, you'll find out on the Country Hour today. First up, the Northern Territory's only large commercial abattoir has started taking delivery of buffalo and cattle this week. For the last two years or so, the Bachelor Meatworks, owned by Central Agri Group, has had quite an extended break over the wet season, shutting down in December and not opening until around July. But this year, it will be starting this month in March, with some smaller numbers to start with. Tom Dawkins is from the NT Buffalo Industry Council. He's actually down at the Berrimah Export Yards today. Uh, Tom, tell us what's happening at the Bachelor Abattoir. G'day, Dan. Um, industry's been in contact with Central Agri over the wet season, talking about its program uh, for the Rum Jungle Meat Export, uh, export Facility um, at Bachelor. Um, well, we know that to, they're keen to, to open that and have a production season uh, longer than it has been in uh, in the last couple of years. So they, they asked us um, in recent weeks about opening in mid, mid-March on a, on a smaller throughput um, and with a domestic focus and the logistics of, of doing that with some lower numbers given the time of the year. Um, and they've decided to go ahead with that and, and utilise the facility that way. So I think it's a, you know, a great vote of confidence um, by that business in, in that facility and, and good news for buffalo producers and any, uh, any partialists with uh, cows or, or bulls about that, uh, that might be suitable for the abattoir. Yeah, for the last two years it's taken the abattoir until around July to reopen. Uh, what does it mean for the industry that it's re- reopening albeit in a smaller sense in March. I think the idea that, um, that they're able to focus, um, I guess, in a, in a lower gear, first or second gear for, for a period, you know, we're talking, I think, in the order of sort of 80 head a week that they're, they're looking at. That just means that that 
that facility is able to operate in sync with what the uh, the producers vendors are able to to get with them for the time being they're certainly not um, looking for huge numbers of animals they're aware of how wet it has been and and it's generally a tight time of the year for um, for the sorts of animals they're looking for but it is just a, a smart decision i think they're able to um, operate uh, at, at, at a lower gear focus on um, some some processing for the domestic market which is something that we're very keen to work with them on especially locally here in the nt and um, and good news good news for them we know it's a tough time uh, in the processing industry across australia it's always a a difficult time in the north for processing so uh, this is good news and um, and we're, we're very pleased that uh, that market option is open to producers uh, so early in the season. Will the bachelor abattoir be focusing mainly on buffalo again this year? I think the good thing about that plant is its ability to uh, process buffalo and cattle. Um, it's probably still going to be reasonable numbers of buffalo around and and suitable sort of manufacturing type cattle might still find a find a um might, might be drawn um into some other processing supply chains we'll wait and see but certainly it's got versatility there um which goes back into central agri's other um business arms in, in, in and especially it's it's manufacturing processing um businesses in in victoria and then into its export markets it's a good sign um certainly um what this what this initial start also enables is the the plants um offering a, a carcass weight price um and the the move to a to a hook price on these smaller throughput numbers is is i think um, a, a good move that's in line with with the rest of the industry. Um, it's it's certainly a price. Like I think everyone would um, would would look look at the the prices that are, have been offered, and, and it reflects the fact that um, you know that uh, they are not looking for huge numbers of animals, uh, and that and that margins are. Um, you know, are pretty tight at the moment, um, so we are expecting that you know when we get into supply season as the weather dries up um, and we hit that that normal sort of production uh, period for that abattoir that you know we'll probably get some further price grid up updates. But um, certainly welcome what we've uh, what we've seen thus far in terms of the news of it. You know, an opening in mid March is is excellent news. If you're just tuning in, this is the Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. You're on ABC Radio right across the Territory and you're hearing from Tom Dawkins from the NT Buffalo Industry Council. Uh, Tom, uh, cattle producers in both the NT and the East Kimberley, uh, they won't have the option of sending cattle to the abattoir near Broome this year because the bridge at Fitzroy Crossing was destroyed. What would that mean for the abattoir at Bachelor? It'll probably open up some more um, options um, to, to the east for, for cattle in those catchments and I think Rum Jungle's been a proposition you know 
of sort of six, seven thousand head per year for the last few years of both species. So it certainly, I don't think, is going to be in a position to, to capture all of that, and that there'll be no doubt some animals that, that head further east. But um, like any you know, disruption to our supply routes or, or road access, it, it'll it'll have a role to play. Um, but um, you know we. We, um, we we might be parochial in the in the NT, but you know we also just want um, want that infrastructure for Kimberley meat to be back on track as soon as possible. That gives us access to the export market at Broome for for Kimberley cattle, and um, you know, that's something that we, uh, um, we you know we're, we're, we'd be far more determined to see. And I, I think. You know, um, Central Agri's got a, a strong West Australian base that they'd certainly agree with me in that regard. At Rum Jungle at the moment, it's just going to be focusing on the domestic market, uh, but one of the big hopes for the company is getting access to the Indonesian market. Uh, what's your understanding about how that uh, certification process is going? It's a slow process, and um, it's a process that we're going through with... Um, some export yards across the north um, and, and then a very similar process in terms of getting approvals for um, abattoirs um, which, are, which are seeking seeking market access to Indonesia. Um, there's been a backlog for, for a number of years. Um, unfortunately, as Indo- Indonesian auditors weren't travelling um, and though we're, we are seeing some progress we hope in terms of live export uh, yards um, those that have applied I think the processing time frame to be honest is is um, is not looking as optimistic as that will continue to to, um, to do everything we can to bring it forward we the viability of, of that plant um, is um, you know, having access to Indonesia for Rum Jungle would be a, a real game changer, and it would really just complement the, you know, the, the business we're doing with Indonesia, um, with with the live the live buffalo, the lighter weight weaner buffalo that we're sending there in in significant numbers. The, the sort of animals I'm looking at um, right now. So we'll continue to push for that, but you know, it would be wrong for me to say that we're anticipating. Uh, change for um, f- for that market access scenario for Indonesia, you know, in um, in, in the coming months. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, there you are down at the Berrima export yards today. Uh, we can hear some noise of trucks in the background. Uh, you're looking at some buffalo that are about to be exported. Uh, what's the the future of the export trade looking like this year? It, it, as we expect for January, February, March. A slow but steady start. The, the you know the the great uh, advantage for buffalo for a long time has, has been that it's a cheaper alternative when cattle prices have been quite extreme. We um, we we are seeing those some of those cattle prices come off now, and so um, especially in my job where I work for exporters, I work on behalf of uh, people bringing forward buffalo in the supply chain. Uh, and all stakeholders in between, uh, it will be interesting to see um, where um, where those prices for, for buffalo land. But I think uh, think it is important that those vendors that are 
hanging on to animals over the wet and, uh, and bringing forward um, excellent quiet animals in tremendous order, you know, that they are, they are rewarded for that time and investment. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour today, Tom. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Tom Dawkins is from the NT Buffalo Industry Council. He's also the Chief Executive of the NT Livestock Exporters Association. And he was speaking there about the Bachelor Abattoir, which is kicking back into gear this week. We have been sent some grid prices that the abattoir is paying. Uh, heavy buffalo over 300 kilo are paying $3.30 per kilo over the hooks, while heavy cattle over that 300 kilogram mark are paying $3.50 over the hooks. It is... 17 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Up next, we're going to check in with a property just over the border in the Gulf Country for an update on the flooding situation there. Creedence Clearwater Revival there on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, right across the Territory this Tuesday at lunchtime. Let's head over the border into northwest Queensland now where some cattle producers are turning their attention to cleaning up and recovery after flooding through the Nicholson, the Gregory and the Leichhardt rivers. Uh, Roads still remain shut, though, with major highways like the Barclay closed between the NT Queensland border and Mount Isa, still days away from being repaired. Lloyd Hick, he's from Thorntonia Station near Camerwell, and he says he received up to 600 millimetres of rain over about seven days. The first four days of it was quite steady rain as the flow drifted from the Northern Territory and um, you know, we were congratulating ourselves on being such good managers, getting this beautiful gentle rain and it was perfect. But then when it went to the Gulf and turned around and came back, it did stall for a couple of days over us and um, it got to um, yeah, extreme conditions then, um, got very, oh, obviously very wet, it got very windy, it got cold. So it, it wasn't ideal conditions for, um, yeah, stock or, or people. How have you fared yourself? I ourselves good. Um, we've got a very good um, crew of people here um, with a terrific attitude that um, just bucked in and got the job done. Yeah, we've got we've got three very wet houses that had close to a meter of water through workshops that have had two meters of water through. But, you know, it's all washable. It's, it, it can be all done. So um, the people around us, that, that's made it good for us to get through it. What's your property looking like now in the aftermath of all that rain? I suppose the word is extremely wet. I did go for a fly yesterday uh, in a helicopter for a bit of a look at it. Um, water's, water's on my property is back in its the riverbanks, but, you know, it's the ground is sat. There's water running out of the hills everywhere. Um, it'll be quite a while, it'll probably a month before we get a vehicle uh, off a main road. I think it's, you know, the ground saturated. How is your property faring in terms of destruction? How bad is it? It's not good. Um, we've got a lot of damage um, to fencing, obviously. Um, anywhere uh, fencing's gone near creeks, it's all rolled up in an untidy heap. We've lost some tanks, yeah, some new 50,000-gallon water tanks um, with solar setups hooked to them. The water's just raced through and um, destroyed them. 
and yeah, made a mess. Do you think you've lost any cattle? No, I don't think so. If anything, it'd be only a few newborn calves that were in the wrong spot at the time. But um, from my first quick inspection, I would say stock losses are very minimal uh, in my part of the country. Um, this is good good country to have this sort of rain event. You know, we've got lots of hills, hard country, um, so they've got somewhere to go and they've got protection with tent um, from from the rain and wind. So I'm expecting stock losses to be very minimal. Have you heard from any other uh, graziers throughout the region, though, about their losses? Have you spoken to other people? Yeah, I think in the lower Gulf, the situation, it could be quite serious uh, around cattle numbers. Uh, the cattle at this stage have been standing in water for a week uh, or longer, and it's probably going to be two weeks before before they're out of it. Yeah, and that's not all cattle, but there are some cattle in, in not a good situation. Yeah, and as we know, the water is over such a big area, it's not possible to shift them to higher ground. Um, so it's, it's a wait and see to see what's going to be in the lower gulf. Lloyd Hick from Thorntonia Station near Camerwheel speaking there about flooding in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Now here in the Territory we understand that the homestead at Lake Nash Station on the NT Queensland border, it is still underwater as flood waters continue to make their way down the Georgina River. Uh, but we're yet to hear any uh, concrete numbers about stock losses here in the Northern Territory. And our thoughts go out to all the stations that are being impacted by flooding across Northern Australia. G'day, I'm Lisa Pepper and I'm in here at Darwin Port where we're currently in the process of loading a couple of thousand head onto the Greyman Express for live export. And thanks for listening to the Country Hour. Well, commercial fishers will remain unable to access the Mini Mini and Merganella river systems northeast of Darwin after negotiations between the NT government and traditional owners failed to reach an agreement. Here's a bit of what the NT Seafood Council's Catherine Winchester told us yesterday. So to have this area closed at such short notice is, is quite a shock. And it, yeah, <laughs> we're very concerned for those fishers that were in the area, but um, the broader ramifications for both of those fisheries going forward with regards to just the availability of, of barren mud crab to the markets, but more so more so having viable businesses that can be certain in access to their fishing grounds. Now, here is at the Country Hour, we approached the NT government for a response to this story. We were referred to the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Selena Yubo. Uh, here's this statement we received. Uh, it says, The Northern Territory Government is continuing negotiations with traditional owners and the Northern Land Council over commercial fisher access to the mini-mini region. A short-term offer to the traditional owners was recently rejected with traditional owners citing they needed more certainty over a number of key issues and prefer to negotiate longer-term individual agreements with commercial operators. The statement goes on to say, whilst the NT government understands the frustrations of commercial operators, we respect the decision of traditional owners and will continue to work on securing longer-term agreements. That is the Northern Territory Government talking about fishing access in the Minimini and Morganella River systems. Well, Australian avocado farmers will now be able to export Hass avocados to India 
under a new deal signed between the two governments of those countries. It's been a tough few years for avocado growers as a huge amount of fruit just flooded onto the market, leaving some farmers with no choice but just to dump fruit in their paddocks. Uh, But John Tice, the CEO of Avocados Australia, says this deal with India will be a game-changer for the industry. Yeah, it's very exciting news for for our industry. We've been granted access for Hass Avocados to India. Um, So we need to do uh, 10 trial shipments before that's uh, that's uh, f- you know in place and we can um, we can trade so we'll be keen over the next couple of months to get those trial shipments in place and then we'll be working through accrediting growers and pack houses around the country to um, be able to start exporting to India has India been one of those markets that avocados Australia has been seeking out for quite a while yeah look we have we've, we've been um, well, we, with the Australian government, has been uh, working on access to India for for a few years, but I'd have to say that it's gone relatively quickly uh, compared with some negotiations that can take many, many years. We're still trying to get access to Thailand, and we've been working on that since 2013. So, you know, they can often take a long time, but this one's been relatively quick, um, and we're really happy that we've got a very commercial uh, and uh, commercially viable and uh, and workable protocol. I think growers will be very interested to hear, you know, what the um, India market is seeking. Are we going to be sending a premium fruit over or is it run-of-the-mill supermarket heading over there? Oh, well, even our run-of-the-mill supermarket product is, is pretty good um, compared to what you see around the world. Uh, but really, it's a, it's a market where we'll be targeting that top end. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in India, nearly 1.5 billion people. Uh, if we can get 1% of people to buy Australian avocados, that's, you know, that's a market of 15 million people. So we'll definitely be targeting uh, that top end. But, um, you know, we, we produce a, a range of, of products in terms of sizes and, and quality. And, uh, you know, we'll be, our exporters will be exploring whatever opportunities there are in, in that region. With a potential glut, another one on the horizon, is this going to help ease those dumping issues and, and really find a new home for them? Yeah, so our production in Australia has been rapidly increasing for the past few years and it'll continue to increase um, simply based on the number of trees that have been planted over the last five to ten years uh, and simply our Australian market won't be able to consume the volume of avocados uh, that are that are coming, and you know we've known that for a while, and that's what we've been why we've been working on trying to open these new markets. Traditionally, our main markets have been Singapore, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, um, and they've been good good markets for Australia, but you know they're relatively small compared with the likes of China or India, um, and so that's why we're so excited about about this new access because it's access to such a large market, um, an avocado market that is really in its infancy um, but set to expand rapidly uh, exponentially hopefully over the over the coming years. Avocado Australia CEO John Tyus speaking there with Lucy Cooper about avocado access to India. It is four minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Now how about this? Uh, Charles Darwin University researchers have developed a new app which aims to help land managers learn how the landscape can assist with fire management. Dr Rowan Fisher, he spoke with Victoria Ellis about the how the fire tracking website NAFI plays an important part in this app. So 
One of the key tools that fire managers across northern Australia and the majority of our rangelands, including all of central Australia, use to uh, monitor fires and support um, fire management is the web resource called North Australia Fire Information. Many people know of it as NAFI. This provides weekly updated mapping of uh, fires over the year and also hotspots that show uh, active fires. So one of my roles um, over the last eight or nine years with Charles Darwin University has been supporting um, all of the fire mapping and monitoring for the Northern Territory. This year is NAFI's 20th birthday, uh, which is quite remarkable. So NAFI has been supporting this uh, best practice fire management uh, for that long, which also means we have this incredible history of fire information. So probably one of the most uh, comprehensive uh, archives um, anywhere in the world um, of understanding the fire ecology and fire history of, uh, of the landscapes of Northern and Central Australia. Using that data set, uh, we're able to actually um, dig back into the archive and get a bit of an idea of uh, how fires behave and one of the things I've been looking at is where fires stop. So by getting that 20 years of fire history, we're able to add all the fire edges, so where fires have stopped together, and get a sense of historically um, the power of different features in the landscape for stopping fires. How can that be useful for pastoralists or other people who are interested in knowing how to manage fires? So it provides a resource which sort of backs up local knowledge. Um, any of these sort of uh, derived uh, fire metrics are definitely no replacement for people's sort of intimate knowledge of their country. But uh, having it as a tool, as like a map tool, can really help support your understanding of understanding um, where fire is likely to spread, spread through the landscape. I mean, it's not really telling us anything which isn't uh, uh, common sense for people who, who know their country. It's uh, you know, roads and rivers and fence lines, um, cliff lines where you've got them. Um, those sort of features are uh, ones which can help you uh, control fires and also help you thinking about where you might put in your strategic fuel mitigation burns. Those natural fire breaks or fire edges, can you give me some examples of what they could be? Yeah, so they I mean, the most obvious one is something like the uh, Stewart Highway. Um, so large roads where there's uh, no fuel, um, fence lines, of course, if, particularly if they're well maintained. Um, but uh, creek beds, uh, rivers, obviously, um, cliff lines. But I guess the other Significant, significant thing when trying to understand uh, how to use these fire breaks to manage country is that if you get a small out rock outcrop, for example, it may stop fires around that rock outcrop, but fires will go around it. So not only are you, you looking for these uh, features that stop fires, you're wanting these sort of fairly long linear sort of things which or breaks which will help you to strategically break up country and manage fire spread. Rowan Fisher, he is a researcher with Charles Darwin University, speaking there about the Fire Edge Mapper. If you jump onto the NAFI website, click on Information Hub, and then you'll find the link there to the Fire Edge Mapper website. It's one o'clock here on the country. I'll speak to you in five minutes. G'day, this is Tom Dawkins from the NT Buffalo Industry Council, and you're listening to the Country Hour. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name. Thanks a lot for your company. 
If you missed the start of the program, you would have heard from Tom Dawkins, who was talking about the reopening of the Bachelor Abattoir. For the last couple of years, that abattoir, it hasn't opened until right in the middle of the dry season, but it is getting going early this year with a bit of a smaller throughput. But yes, it's starting to take some cattle and buffalo. If you want to hear that story, it'll be available via the podcast later today. Just jump onto your podcast app on your phone and search for Northern Territory Country. You can find all of our yarns there. As still to come, we are going to hear what it takes to make a good cook and how cattle stations can go about retaining and, and keeping one of the most important people on their stations, the station cook. But let's check in with the Weather Bureau before all of that. We've got Billy Lynch on deck today. How are you, Billy? Yeah, good, thanks, Dan. That's the way. Uh, let's start with some rainfall figures overnight. And from what I can see on the map, there was pretty much only one sort of decent-sized storm in the Territory yesterday. Yeah, there's just one standout in the rain list, which is Edith Farms Road, 73 millimetres, uh, with a thunderstorm. Um there were storms out there yesterday afternoon and overnight. Um, that was definitely the best recording, but a few others. Owen Pelly came in with 16 millimetres, Adelaide River Station 14, um, Lakefield uh, south of Catherine 7 millimetres. So you kind of get the picture. It's really starting to dry out a bit now. Yeah. Is there any? Is there much chance of more rain this week in the top end? Well, look, generally not. We're in this monsoon break period now, so um, really for this week we're just looking at isolated showers and thunderstorms, you know, mainly during that afternoon and evening period. Um, the one sort of addition to that is overnight tonight. Um, there could be a bit of a pickup in the, the thunderstorm activity um, because right at the moment we've got a trough across central parts of the top end sort of extending from about Manangarita across Kakadu down into that southern daily district. And that trough is going to push uh, westwards, um, you know, go over Darwin and, and sort of push off the west coast overnight tonight and tomorrow. Um, so, you know, that should, um, you know, result in, in a good chance of seeing uh, an overnight shower or thunderstorm across the northwestern top end. But after that, um, yeah, really just going back to those isolated showers and storms and uh, of course the morning period's going to be you know a lot of sunshine uh still going to feel quite humid out there so back into the monsoon break unfortunately yeah it certainly felt like that in darwin this morning it was pretty hot and humid and i was uh putting on a sweat pretty early um uh yeah is 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 there much chance of another monsoon break coming our way before the end of the wet billy yeah like another active monsoon period uh, the there is. Um, it's just going to depend on the timing of the next MJO. Um, and so at this stage, you know, it might sort of come through the middle of April. Um, so that would be the, probably the next window. But, um, yeah, to be honest, it, it's actually pretty rare to get the monsoon in April. It, what tends to happen is as the MJO goes past, it's more likely to see a tropical low or a tropical cyclone form. Um, so... That is still going to be a risk, you know, in that last sort of six weeks of the wet season we've got left and probably middle of April would be the next window where that could happen. Yeah, OK. And just uh, 
the final flood warning is out for the lower daily. Uh, yesterday, Arvo, it seemed like uh, the daily river uh, went below that flooding level. It's on its way down now? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it was around 6 or 7 o'clock last night. It's dropped below 12.6 metres, which is the minor flood level. It's down to 12.3 metres now, and that should just continue to fall. So, yeah, whatever sort of shower and storm activity we get across the, the daily catchment this week, it's not going to result in any um, significant renewed rises. So um, great news for, for those people through the, the daily river catchment. And conditions in the Barclay and Central Australia this week, Billy, how are things? Yeah, look, I mean, temperatures should actually be a few degrees below average um, or close to average through the Barclay. Um, temperatures sort of in the mid-30s. Uh, there will be just the chance of a few thunderstorms across the, the northern Barclay uh, for the next few days, but... But generally, the southern half of the NT is looking pretty dry and um, very hot the further south you get. So the Lassiter, the Simpson district, looking at uh, temperatures getting close to or even above 40 degrees. Um, we've got 40 degrees on Alice Springs on Thursday and, uh, you know, 41s and 42s for Yulara for much of this week. So um, very hot until there will be a weak trough pushed through over the weekend. Might bring a few very isolated showers and thunderstorms, but... Um, that's about all the, the weather gods are offering down that part this week, Dan. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can see uh, Curtin Springs, 43 on Friday, um, 42 for another couple of days. It's, um, yeah, heating up there. Yeah, most definitely. And we are going to see a low-intensity heat wave um, develop through southern parts of the NT because of that prolonged period of hot weather. Okay. Um, anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon, Billy? No, it's, it's all definitely quietening down here at the Weather Bureau, so um, I think that's about it. Thanks, Dan. No worries. Thanks for the update. That's Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. It is 11 minutes past one. Driving into flood water is the main cause of death in floods. Many of these drivers were in four-wheel drives and utes. Flood water over the road can look still but can hide fast-flowing water underneath. Water also hides the road surface, which can get washed away and large potholes and cracks can form. An unstable road surface can collapse under the weight of your vehicle. If you come across water over the road, turn around. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. It is 11 minutes past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio right across the Territory. As mining giant BHP launches a biofuel trial to reduce diesel emissions on its mine sites across the country, some people are wondering if it's such a good idea for the environment. Michelle Stanley has this report. If there's one thing synonymous with mine sites, it's got to be diesel engines. But at BHP's Yandy Iron Ore Mine near Newman in WA's Pilbara, it's not just diesel powering the haul trucks, it's veggie oil. Oh, it's very exciting. We are trialling our hydrogen vegetable oil. It's a form of renewable diesel. That's Yanni Kotsis, the General Manager of Operations at Yandy. Hydro-treated vegetable oil, or HVO, which comes from plants like canola, soybeans and sunflowers, will be blended with diesel to power haul trucks, dozers and loaders at Yandy in a three-month trial with fuel supplier BP. Yeah, we're very excited to see how it goes. In terms of the BHP group uh, greenhouse emissions, about 40% comes from the use of diesel fuel. 
So naturally, this is a core focus of our decarbonization strategy. And ultimately, our goal is to reach electrification. But while that transition is happening, this could be a promising alternative to reduce our emissions in the near term. It's an easy swap for the mining company. It's able to use the same machinery and it's expected to have the same power as regular diesel, but it's lower in carbon. Associate Professor James Hopewood from the University of South Australia is an environmental engineer and he's commended BP and BHP on this trial, saying that on a local level it is a positive step. We've got a really significant company in BHP taking this this challenge seriously and partnering with BP, who are a really significant player in the the world energy uh, system. So at, at that level, I'm thinking... This is really good that people are having a a serious conversation about the energy transition and reducing carbon emissions and transitioning to a zero carbon future, and it's commendable. But more broadly speaking, James Hopewood isn't a fan of biofuel. And that's because while technically it is lower in carbon than regular diesel, just looking at the carbon emissions doesn't show the whole picture. It's much more impactful to the environment in terms of negative impact, to generate renewable fuels. Associate Professor James Hopewood says to produce energy from biofuel, you need 10 times the amount of land than that of a solar or wind farm. He recognises that solar and wind farms have issues of their own and technology does still need to catch up. But he doesn't think transitioning away from regular diesel to a biodiesel is always the right option. They just take an enormous amount of land. They take nutrients, they take water, and they have a, a just a large footprint and either compete with food or compete with wild ecosystems for us to make, make space for that. It's not a simple equation for mining companies, though. I mean, they've got shareholders and social licence issues to think about on top of government regulations. So they need to be seen to be doing something. James Hopewood says that is where it gets complicated. I can certainly see why when there is a tremendous amount of pressure to reduce greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as possible, why there would then be a tendency to say, well, we need to green the fleet by greening the fuel while we wait for the technology to catch up in terms of the electrification. I'm not sure if that is necessarily the way that we should go. I'm not sure if that ends up amounting to not quite greenwashing. It's certainly not um, not greenwashing in terms of it being Uh, an empty gesture, as I think we can take it at face value as a genuine gesture. But it's possible that if we look at it differently, instead say, right, well, we know that's not the long term, that's not going to deliver our long term needs anyway, because our long term needs will be met with electric solutions. So in the meantime, we may have little choice but to keep using the sorts of vehicles we're using, use them as efficiently as we can. And the other thing is to say, okay, well, during this interim period where we're going to be emitting carbon, we will do our best to offset that carbon through uh, environmentally beneficial activities like large-scale revegetation. That should certainly be in the mix in terms of how we make this transition and we genuinely then reduce net carbon emissions while also having a positive impact on biodiversity and then transitioning when the technology allows it to an electric future. 
At BHP, Yanni Kotsis says the company's waiting for delivery of their first battery electric haul truck sometime next year. They'll be commercially available later this decade, and the company expects to have fully transitioned to battery electric haul trucks in the mid-2030s. So there is a plan, but that's more than a decade away. James Hopewood recognises there is a need for action in the meantime, but he thinks companies could actually continue using regular diesel instead of transitioning for transition's sake. If we had leadership that was not not just focused on the number of tonnes of CO2 emissions, but was actually focused more on the, the system, the whole system that we're working within, then that would go a long way to addressing the issue that we've got, which is what should, a, what should a company do right now to satisfy the demands of the people who are the ultimate sort of end users and customers, while also contributing in the best way to the transformation that we need to see at the, at the system level. The Yandy HVO trial is underway now and it'll go for the next three months. After that, BHP will decide whether or not to roll biofuel out more widely across its sites. Michelle Stanley reporting there. And if you want to read more on that story, just jump online and search for ABC Rural. But still to come, we're going to be talking about the importance of station cooks and why they need just as much training and support as other people on the station. That's after Chris Stapleton. Don't put my love on your back. Chris Stapleton there with Second One to Know on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio right across the Territory. Well, they're said to be one of the most important people on a cattle station, but finding and retaining station cooks can be tough. That's led to a group of current and former cooks to band together to form a business to help stations to recruit, train and relieve their cooks. Co-founder Raquel Humphreys has more than 25 years of experience as a station and a shearer's cook. She told Max Rowley how this new venture came about. We started it because for the last uh, 10 or more years, I've been helping people find cooks and helping cooks find work just for free, like just in my own spare time. And I've been able to see how hard it is for an employer to get a good cook and to keep that cook and also for cooks to get into a job where they feel happy and safe and appreciated. I thought about it one day and I, I wasn't really, you know, wanting to be a full-time station cook anymore and my boss at the time said, well, why don't you, you know, start a recruitment agency and, and help cooks out that way and I went, oh, that sounds like a great idea and then another friend of mine and I were talking about relief cooking because there's a, a quite a few relief jobs come up throughout the year and then I've always wanted to help train cooks. And so that's how the business came about. We do recruitment, we do training, and we do relief cooking. It's just to help fill a void in the, the industry that is just getting bigger and bigger every day. What is the experience like of being a cook on a remote cattle station? Oh, it's, it's awesome. That's, <laughs> it's uh, stress-free most of the time. You work on your own a lot, so you're your own boss. You've got to organise your day, so time management's a big part of your day. You know, you don't, you've got no menus to, to deal with. You can just decide every day what you want to cook or you can think ahead for a week what you want to cook. It's entirely up to you. You get a lot of free time to yourself through the day. You can go off and look at the station. You can go driving with the boss or you can go out into the garden or you can read a book. It's a way of life more than a job. And I think they say a happy cook is a happy station. 
That's exactly right. We see the cook as the heart of the station. You're there in the middle. So you you feed everybody on the station just about and um, you're the first person the crew sees in the morning and you're the last person they see at night. So if you've got a happy cook in the kitchen, then you've got a happy crew. And if you've got a sour cook in the kitchen, then you've got a sour crew. And so why do you think it's it's so hard for stations to find and and keep their cooks then? Uh, it's mainly to do with, in, in some cases, it's the way the cook is treated. We've still got some employers out there that think it's okay to not treat their cook very well, just treat them like a slave and just dump all these extra jobs onto them all the time. And it's also cooks, especially now after COVID, there's a lot of um, people coming in that can't do what they're trained to do anymore because they're not vaccinated or whatever. So they're coming in thinking, yeah, I can do that. I can cook. And then they get out to a station and they're just dumped in the kitchen and expected to be able to do the job and not given any backup. You know, so their time management is off, so they're late with meals or they don't cook enough. Um, Mental health is a huge part of our job because you're on your own all day. Unlike the stock camp who are out there together all day, the cook is left in the kitchen and you very rarely see anybody. So the, the mental health declines uh, and it's it's not an easy job because you've got to come up with something nice to feed your crew that's also healthy and nutritious as well as something that they're going to want to eat. You're their nutritionist as well as their cook. So what's the response been to this new venture, uh, Remote Contract Cooks? Oh, it has been awesome. It really has. We've had employers say, you know, thank you for, for this. we like just been stunned by the absolute... backing that we've got from our industry, from the beef industry especially, because that's who we deal with mainly. The employers have just come on board. We've got some of the major companies, the pastoral companies in Australia have just backed us right from the very start. The training is a little bit slow to take off because, you know, it's all about the ringers. The ringers get all of the, the training. The cooks don't really get that much at all, but it'll take off eventually, hopefully. And the relief cooking, you know, we've, we've filled jobs all over the place with relief cooks and full-time cooks. So uh, I, just, I just can't be more prouder of, of myself and my business partner, Tanya, who runs the HR side of things. It's just been an amazing response from the industry. What's the response been like from the cooks that you've worked with so far on this? Again, it's, it's just been fabulous. Like we've, uh, we've got some cooks that have... You know, they've come to us because they've had, they've they found a job on their own and it hasn't worked out because they haven't done their, um, you know, they haven't had much information on the employer that they've gone to and it hasn't worked out. So they've come to us and said, oh, look, you know, I still want to give this a go. Can you guys help me out? And then Tanya's gone above and beyond to check references and, and then gone to an employer and, and talked to an employer about what the job involves and she's matching the right cooks with the right jobs. She's not just sending anybody. To a job, so you know she'll spend an hour or more on the phone talking to the employer about the job, and then she'll go back to the cooks that she has, and then she'll talk to each of those, and she'll pick out the ones that she thinks are perfect for that job. So the cooks have just come on board as well, and we've got reference, um, we've got emails coming in every day full of resumes, and yeah, we've got some really happy cooks out there now that are, are jobs that they're happy with. And you've worked uh, all across the country, Raquel, but uh, you're actually heading up to, to start your first ever contract here in the in the Territory this year. Yeah, that's right. I did do a small stint on Manbaloo Station out of Catherine, but um, that was 
um, years and years ago now. So um, the Labelle Downs will be my first proper so territory job, and I'm really looking forward to it. Are there still some meals that are, you know, are still a favourite now and they were back then? <laughs> oh, always. It's always crumb steak. <laughs> um, that's, that's the biggest favourite meal. I, I guess a city person would call it beef schnitzel. Um, that's crumb steak. Uh, corned beef is always a staple. Uh, corned beef on sandwiches, corned beef for dinner, corned beef fritters. Um, and beef, just beef in general because, you know, the cattle stations and the beef is supplied for you for free in most cases. But, yeah, anything beef is and anything crumbed and battered is the way to go. Raquel Humphreys, she's an owner and co-founder of Remote Contract Cooks, and I'm told she's pretty good in the baking baking department as well, Raquel. She was speaking there to Max Rowley. <laughs> Time now in the country hour to take a look at the cattle markets. Let's head to Roma where Sam Hart has all the details. Some good falls of rain across the supply area caused numbers to fall to 1,600 ahead at Roma today. Quality was mixed and while the better pens saw some good competition, averages remained similar to last week. A small yarding of prime cattle also saw similar prices. Additional orders from Western Queensland helped maintain prices for yearling steers with lightweight restocker steers to a top of 538.2 to average around 468, while restocker steers sold to 514.2 to average 454. Restockers paid up to 486.2 for steers 330 to 400 kilos to average 414, and there was too few heavy feeder steers to quote. A pen of lightweight restock heifers to join sold to an isolated 468.2 with most around 354 cents. Medium, feed, medium feeder heifers sold to 350.2 to average 326. Heavy heifers to the processors sold to 310.2 and ground steers made to 328. Medium cows improved selling to 279.2 to average 270 and heavy cows made to 282.2 to average 275. A Sam Hart there at Roma. As we heard at the start of the program, the Bachelor Abattoir is kicking back into gear and it's put out some uh, price guides. Heavy buffalo over 300 kilos are paying $3.30 over the hooks and heavy cattle over 300 kilos, $3.50 over the hooks. And in the live export trade, uh, feeder steers to Indonesia from Darwin, fetching around $4.20 per kilo. That's it for the Country Hour for today. Have a good one.